You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, if you don't know what Go Wild is, Go Wild is the fastest growing and most active app for hunters, anglers, and outdoor enthusiasts. Literally thousands of people are joining weekly, so it's uh, one of the fastest growing social media platforms for outdoor enthusiasts. Now, most major social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook have strict, very strict, anti-hunting and anti-firearm policies. That's not the case with Go Wild. If you're uh, a gun lover, you can post pictures of your guns. If you're uh, a hunter, a fisher, an angler, you know, all that good stuff, you can you can post pictures of your harvests, you know. Uh, a little blood doesn't hurt anybody, and as we all know, you know, hunters, an animal dies typically when we harvest, and a lot of people have uh, a problem with that on the major, uh, major social media platforms, not on Go Wild, right? This is designed by hunters for hunters and anglers so um and here's a, another great thing about uh go wild they donate a lot of their revenue back into conservation groups one specific example is raise them outdoors and uh, that organization um, is helping teach kids to hunt and fish so they're doing lots of big time giveaways and uh, you can store your pictures forever and ever and ever and there's over 130 species and counting in their systems to uh, to tag and to like and then you, basically what you're doing is you're joining a community uh, of other like-minded individuals who love hunting, love fishing, and love just being outside. So if you haven't already, go to wherever you download apps and search for Go Wild and uh, download it today. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another Land and Legacy podcast. I'm your host, Adam. And Matt Dye. And we have another special podcast for you guys that goes right in with the time of the year, with the season, um, titled Early Season, Common Early Season Mistakes, Early Season Mishaps, all the stuff that we do wrong during the early part of hunting season. Basically everything to avoid this time of year to lessen chances of success throughout the remainder of the hunting season. That's right. I know it's so easy to get like that bit by the hunting bug I'm, i guess what i'm gonna call it because there's so much lead up preparation and work and stuff that goes into like this time of the year and those those first couple sets in a tree stand and everyone's out there social media is getting blown up by pictures and big bucks and velvet this and that and it's like i want a piece of that i, I want to enjoy that and have that experience and there's again there's so much time and effort spent off season preparing for this but I, I don't know. I see it so many times and see the hear the horror stories of everyone is making the mistakes that's going to lessen their chances of the long-term season success. That's right. I think uh, outdoor television, a lot of the big, like, they come down to the wire where you see a lot of the kills from the rut and everything in July and August to where you're sitting there at home watching the outdoor channel like, like air, airing July yeah, and August. You're seeing the like the new season start in end of June, I yeah. think, 
and then they grow through to where you're seeing some of the best shows right in July and August. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. <laughs> and then you're in, in turn, you're getting pumped up for deer season. So when it does open up, whether it's the beginning of September, mid-September, or first of October, you're going, man, I can't wait to get in the stand. And it's like those first, I don't want to say it kind of like, but it's almost like the pace car. Those first few hunts of the season, it feels like you can get really down or really up, um, whether they go good or uh, you have a lot of success or not. And uh, I think of a lot of times you go out early and you're like, man, this is awesome, season's here. And you're kind of like, ah, I don't really know if the wind's right for that stand, but I'm I'm not going to sit at home. Season's but I've been open. sitting at home for, what, eight months now? And I'm going. Oh. And when you go, that's when you can really mess things up, when you go when the, when the uh, conditions aren't favorable. But then there's also, um, in this podcast, there's also some stuff that relates to habitat and the work we're doing that can be done or uh, that you can do during this time of the year that can really um, affect you in a negative way negative way so yeah there's stuff in here for hunting and and uh habitat so that's right excited to unveil this one go through our list of things also um i don't know where you're listening to it now if you're listening to on itunes whether it's the the sportsman's nation feed or the lane legacy feed or or if you're listening on stitcher or or you listen to it on our website if there's a chance to leave a review please leave us a review um and let us know how we're doing Another thing is, I know this is kind of getting to the time of year where do we talk about hunting? Do we talk about habitat? Like last year, we just talked a lot about hunting and not so much habitat because we had the one podcast. This year, we have both podcasts. We have a hunting, one that's devoted to hunting, one that's devoted to habitat. But still, there's not a lot of work to do um, or to talk about um, this time of year for habitat just because even if there was something to do, a lot of us wouldn't do it because we want to be focused on hunting. Um, and so, with that being said, I'm, I'm curious. I would like to hear some people's ideas through email or, or uh, comment on our Facebook page about some ideas, you, topics you would like us to cover. I've had a couple come through lately, people just reaching out telling me they'd like to hear us talk about a certain topic. Um, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear what other people have and, and things that we can do to improve this podcast even more, whether that's have more guests on, have more uh, whatever, ramblings and all kinds of stuff. Just let us know how we could do better. Don't get us off the cuff too much. You never know what's going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's one of the, the, the I guess, the benefits of off the cuff, but also – we float with some dangerous territory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so anyway, um, so this week, I think there's a lot of hunting in this one, but also habitat as mentioned earlier. But the first thing we have to talk about is when the season first opens up, whether that's the beginning of September or the 1st of October or somewhere in, in the middle, is hunting too aggressively early in the season. And, and there's multiple ways to hunt too aggressively it's a decision standpoint of where you're going but then also a decision standpoint of how much time you're spending out there and devoting to the chances the observations whether it's from scouting or trail cameras that basically your property's telling you hey i'm ready to be hunted or the deer are telling you i'm ready to be hunted because we can go in there again with that anticipation just i want to be in the stand but not have good opportunities that's right and when you're out there and don't have good opportunities, you 
lessen the chances of having good opportunities down the road, like we talked about earlier. It's like, how, how, what's that like balance point of how much time do I, should I put in here now or should I simply just stay out? That's right. Um, and I think we can all fall victim to this of, I think we, if you pinned us all down and you ask, and you took a poll and you asked hunters, deer hunters, when is your best chance at harvesting a mature buck? I think a lot of people would probably say the rut. Mm-hmm. But then another large portion of people would say late season food. Yep. I don't know of, there wouldn't be a high percentage of people saying early season. I think that there, there is, in, and it can be regionally based yep. too. It's basically focus on the food the food sources and depending on the varying food sources or just the lack of food sources, some deer don't have as many options in certain areas. And then that creates a great a limited resource to hunt over. And, and it, it can depend, but I think, like I said, in general, people are going to stick with late season or the rut for opportunities at, at bucks that they want to harvest specifically. And again, not to say early season, it can't be done because, I'm seeing it right now, and yeah. we're staring opportunities in the face saying, wow, that deer, he he's killable. He is, and I, that's where it's kind of like if I have alfalfa, if I have a great, and I know people are notorious for killing bucks early in the season um, because they have alfalfa fields. Mm-hmm. And I think if you had that, there's a great opportunity there. But then if you're in the boat of going, trying to kill a, a mature buck coming to um, Akron's, early in the season or coming to food plots, you know it's very risky to to say, yeah, I'm got, I've got him coming to this this white oak tree. I'm, I'm going to get him. We're talking things in, in a matter of hours. Food sources can change in a matter of hours at this time of the, the season in areas with acorns. Like yesterday, we had rains come through, and, and it rained more, not like heavy showers, but – it rained enough, what do you say, a 1.3 inches down on the property? Yeah. And there weren't too many acorns on the ground, especially right where we hunted. But with that much amount of rainfall and extra weight hanging on those limbs and the acorns themselves, I'm and the, sure... And the wind that came yeah, with it. A bunch fell. And now we're like, okay, at the, every deer coming to and from plots is most likely going to be delayed if they even make it there because of all the foraging opportunities that the acorns allow at this time of year. Yeah. And that changed like that. In a matter of hours. And even on the drive in, I was looking at the gravel road and there were some big, the big like savannah white oak trees, the big wolfy field trees that were raining. And you drive over and it looks like marbles on the gravel road. It's like, uh uh-oh. Yeah, and then we got up there to where we hunted last night. There wasn't any on the ground, but the trees are still loaded. Mm-hmm. And knowing what happened last night, it's like I'm betting a lot of those acres started falling off the trees. Yeah, and because of that, now we're going, oh man! Now we're looking at a completely different season, and and those opportunities though. And this is where I think the trail cameras, they're not going to show it or reflect it as as quickly as just general woodsmanship knowledge of what's happening out there is going to indicate for you. But again, things changed like that. And now we're looking at an opportunity that is probably slipping away quicker than what we would like to admit because of the acorns dropped. 
there's definitely a race against time when early season opens up for the guys, especially in timber country. Season opens up. You still have some bucks in velvet if it's early September, mid-September. Um, you still And so they're not as cautious, I guess, is, is the term I'll use. That definitely there's something to be said about when a buck loses this velvet, they get a lot more cautious and, and start getting a lot more um, skittish yep. and leery of, of certain things. Um, so you have bucks shedding velvet. You have bucks that are in bachelor groups, and they start to bust up. And, and what was their friends all summer long, they're starting to get irritated with, and they start kind of becoming more uh, more solo artists instead of uh, in a band. And then you have also food sources changing drastically. You have deer that were coming into food plots like we had all summer long, pouring into food plots or a food plot, not the same one, but various ones every night, and now they're gone. Um, and so you're in that race of season opens up. I need conditions to where I know they're going to move during daylight, but also I'm against the I'm against the clock of going. Okay, they're they're going to change their pattern soon. So if if the weather changes and or the weather doesn't change and it's hot still and you're like, I need to get in there. I need this wind to get in there. And it never happens. That's better to just stay out of there knowing that you missed the window on killing them on their summer pattern than trying to go in there with bad wind and blowing them out and messing the whole season up. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there, there's there's things that change. And, and because of all the, the opportunities for things to change at this time of the season, that's what relates to not the best time of season to hunt and capitalize on it. Um, you you take your opportunities when you can and when they come, but there's there's other portions of the season when you're talking there. They just got me thinking. It's like, what other times of the year do do things just certainly change and, and alter the game? And I, I think of you know when the leaves fall. That's a big a big difference um, we see in in deer habitat because areas that once provided cover now don't have cover and they're going to use different areas of their, their home range or portions of their home range. Um, and then again, if you're in crop country, when all the crops are harvested, whoom, there's a big change. And things can, I mean, overnight, fields that they were bedding in, cornfield gets cut, boom, it's gone. Now it's a food resource. They're, they're changing when they're using it. Um, and then late season, when the, the temperature swings are, are huge. But all those times, some of those changes relate to better hunting, but in this instance, early season, all these changes that you just talked about is like, that's not a positive for a hunter. That that's that's like, that's worsening the odds for him. Yeah. Um, and, and it just it makes it it makes it that much tougher to to hunt. And I think what we talked about, or have here in the notes, is like, what type of hunting are you trying to do this time of this the season? Are are you out there? Like, what are your goals? Are you out there to harvest specifically a buck? Or are you out there to, you know, work towards your management goals for the year? Are you out there to harvest some antlerless deer if your property needs that? And I think identifying those goals early season and, and basically executing at least one of them or working towards one of them is going to have a well-rounded season. Because if, if you need does killed and you got does coming to a plot and no mature bucks around, but you're putting all your effort into harvesting or hunting a food plot that's got a mature buck coming to it once, twice, 
in a whole week during daylight hours, to me, my time would be better spent harvesting does in a food plot where I know the chances are good, getting that those does, basically the numbers, kind of knocked out for the season early on. And then when he starts becoming a better pattern, hunting a mature buck or hunting the buck of choice for you. I think, I know, I know certainly um, that when we when we look at our consulting business and we put together the maps of of where stands should be and we add little food plots here and there. Um, and I, I'm sure landowners and clients of ours have looked at some of those going, I wonder why they wanted me to put a stand there. Mm-hmm. And then later on they ask us, and it's like, you need stands. Right now you have a, several good stands for killing mature deer, but you don't have any great stands to shoot does early in the season or late in the season that aren't going to put a bunch of pressure on your other deer herd, like on, on the mature areas. bucks. Yes. I, I think a lot of times that if you don't, if you can't think of the stands that, oh yeah, let's kill the does out of there, um, then you probably have to reevaluate the way your farm is set up because you can't, don't look at stands in the middle of the prime areas and say, yeah, that's where I'm going to shoot some does early season. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of farms and a lot of areas in the country are in the predicament that they're in is because people haven't shot does for years Oh yeah, because they don't want to mess up the mature buck that they've seen in that area on camera once every week. That, that, that buck that showed up like once during the summer, you're like, Oh, there's a chance. It's like, yeah, yeah but like a tiny chance. And, and so, the whitetail report that QDMA puts out, like, this is scientific information on harvest from data across, like, almost every state in the whitetails range supports this. This isn't just, you know, two guys sitting on the couch talking. This is, you know, evidence, observation, not observation, excuse me, evidence, hard numbers to support the fact that we as hunters have got to start shooting some does. And and I think we talked about it with Kip on a, on a podcast in the past is these – Shooting does and having like balanced adult sex ratios increases the frequency and opportunities and quality of mature bucks in an area. Uh, to me, it's like, golly, I, I kind of want both. I want to be splinging some arrows. Yeah, and I want op- better opportunities at at you know a better age class or or older deer, whatever. Personally, so I'm gonna start shooting some does if your area calls for that. Yeah. Even our area, where we don't have great deer numbers, we don't have the populations we see in a lot of places. We're not out of whack. But then you look at some of our food plots, and it's like, we get a lot of pressure. It's either, and we know that we're going to fix this by not killing a bunch of does, but more adding more food to the table. Yeah. Because we just have so much closed canopy forest right now, and we'll talk about this later in the podcast, on the pros and cons of, of getting more food on the table and how to do that. Um but how many times do we get asked the question, when should I shoot my does? I don't want to shoot them early because I don't want to, I don't want to jack up my, my farm. Well, you're jacking the, you're jacking the farm up by not shooting does. If you're at the point where you know you have to kill a lot of does, you've already jacked it up. Yes. So let's, let's just work then to unjack it up (laughs) and just do what needs to get done. It, It seriously is a part of management. Yes. It's, it, we have habitat management we talk about. This is herd management, and it's so important. And it's overlooked by so many people. Yes. Um, and definitely a problem. I think of there's a lot of times where you have to, when you look at shooting a mature doe, 
when is the best time? When if, when do I have the best chance of getting her in the ranch? Is it early season or is it late season? And you look at what has occurred for late season does. The whole hunting season. They've been alerted by everybody. They've smelled everybody. And they're a lot more alert and cautious. It's going to be harder to kill them during late season than it is early season if you have the food source available. Now, if you have a standing bean field and deer pouring in and you're like, I'm going to shoot some does tonight, great. But the other problem with that would be you're also going to risk having bucks coming in too um, if you're hunting a late season standing bean field. And, And you typically have tons of eyeballs on you because food sources are limited and they congregate. During late season. So and there's no leaves. One, one doe probably means there's five or six others in the field, too. That's right. And you're educating them as you shoot her. And the other thing is just the, the logical, hey, if I shoot a doe early season, that's going to leave more forage out there during October, November, December for the deer that I do want to make it on. They're going to have access to that that other doe isn't going to eat. And they're eating, I think I want to say it's like five to seven pounds of Dry forage a day. Yeah. That's a lot of food out there. Yeah. So weigh that out. If you if you take five does, that's a lot more food on your property that can support and get those deer ready that are going to make it through winter, build up their body fat, and get them through winter healthier. So here's the question with the answer. When do I shoot my – when's the best time to shoot my does? As soon as possible. When season opens. <laughs> when season opens, shoot them. Try don't. This isn't something that should be delayed. This is something that affects the habitat, the herd health, and the overall health of the land. So make sure that if you do have does to shoot, you're getting on top of that before it becomes a huge problem. We could make this really cool like infomercial, like "Don't wait, don't delay, shoot your does today." Yeah, like those stupid slogans you see. (laughs) Yeah, like the tax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tax commercials. That's right. This is not something to delay. Yes. Um, I will say one other thing. When we're talking about hunting aggressively, right before we jumped into the doe stuff, um, there's a lot of guys that, that listen to this podcast that hunt public ground as well. Yeah. This is where you can blend in the combination of hunting public ground and private ground and not just focusing on private ground. I hope, and, and I know that we get dubbed as private land hunters just because of the fact that we're management guys and you can't do a lot of that on public ground. We do hunt public ground, um, not as much as we do private ground anymore, but we grew up, I grew up hunting a ton of public ground, but whenever you're looking at hunting aggressive on public ground versus private ground early in the season, you can get away with that on public ground just because, and I oftentimes erred on the side of aggressive because if you treat it a lot like your private ground and you avoid those key areas and really getting in tight on deer, um, Somebody Some, else, someone else is probably going to go in there and Somebody hunt else ends up doing <laughs> it and killing them. So I hunt really aggressive on public ground. Not stupid aggressive, but aggressive. As in, I push the issue more than, than other times. I, and definitely more than I would on private ground. And everyone's like, oh, he's that guy. <laughs> I'm that guy. Yeah, for sure. Because But you kind of have to be. You have to hunt. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when you get on the freeway and, and you're a new driver and you haven't driven before, and you're like, okay, and your mom and dad's driving with you, you're like, okay, you kind of have to be a little defensive out here. You have to play kind of watch for other people. You're like, you know, this is your area. You just kind of have to get in there and, and merge over in those lanes and all those fast cars are driving by, and you get in there and you just drive with them. Kind of like public ground. You're like, well, hey, here's my opportunities. Here are the really good spots I want to hunt, 
if I'm not hunting them, someone else is, but I'm, I'm only going to do it to the extent of the right conditions, get in there and hunt. Yeah. You're right. along with the, the rest of them. Yeah. And, and, and in our area, there's a lot, there's a lot of public ground. Oh, and so tons. you could, you could blow out a spot just by being too aggressive and then leave and go hunt another spot. You can't do that on private ground. No. Um, unless you own a large track, and I still wouldn't advise that. And I don't even advise that on public ground. But you can get more aggressive because, unfortunately, when you hunt public ground, there are the issues of, okay, I've stayed out of this food plot or I've stayed out of this air, area, um, and now the conditions are favorable. And then you get in there and you see candy wrappers or tree stand yeah. marks, and you like, somebody's been hunting on a bad wind. All this trail markers going yeah. in. Like, or, oh, son of a gun. or you finally set up and you're you're good and it's 30 minutes before dark and all of a sudden you hear something, you look over and here comes a guy with a long bow with an arrow knocked and he's trying to walk yeah. up on one. Um, so there's all kinds of issues with hunting public ground. But in regards to early season mishaps, um, this is where there's a difference between aggressive hunting on public ground and aggressive hunting on private ground. Yeah, that's a good point to make for sure. Whew. What other ones do you want to – I know we skipped one. Do you want to tie that in with uh, – unless I haven't updated my, my notes here, but food plots early season. Yeah. When you're Let's looking talk. at planting food plots during the early season, I will say that I feel that where we're at in social media and in land management 2018 – there is a trend where people are planting earlier and earlier every single year. It's and like I think this is responsible for the fact that a lot of our big hunting shows and big key people in the outdoor world are in areas where you plant late July. Mm-hmm. And then that affects everybody in the South. Uh, you know, we had to... Um Again, just like a lot of things that we talk about here on the podcast regionally, we have to think about you know localized management. What is occurring? Like every plan that that we write, every every full management plan that we write, we include things like average rainfall for your location, average uh, first frost, average last frost. Those are indications of that property specific climate in that area and, and if we're if we're allowing uh, say social media to dictate when we're planting and and oh well he's doing it i, I should really look into do I, I got next weekend free but there's there's no rain in the forecast um th- there's it's predicted to be 100 plus degree heat for the next two weeks we're not making the right decisions. No. Based on your property or where you're hunting or wherever your lease is, we've got to be smart about it. And and if we do make those silly mistakes, we don't have great plots to hunt over. They're not as young and tender and palatable. And here's and I'm we might be guilty of this as well, but how many times did you see a post in let's just say mid July cuz I saw it in mid July. Somebody shows planting a food plot in the city. It's food plot season for your area. Yeah. But you're a small sample size in in the rest of the country that's planting food plots. And if there's somebody who doesn't know when to plant, they read that and say, oh, so-and-so is planting. I need to get my food plots ready. So they blow out there and disc it up and get ready to plant. And it's like, 
raw facepalm me because you're a month and a half too Away. early. And yeah. like our friend down in Georgia, he was texting me saying he was getting his Stratton seed in this week mm-hmm. to get ready to plant, hopefully in the coming weeks. And it's like, if it, and that's in South Georgia. If you're, there's a lot of guys that are probably like, what, next week he's planting planting? Well, that's the Heck, time I'm to right. plant. And deer season's already opened up in Georgia. Yeah. They've been hunting for a week and a half now or more. So it's like, you. Everyone out there's got to follow it. And again, this goes back to okay, how how can we relate this back to early season mistakes? And that is, if you're planning way too early, yes, you might have some great tonnage wise uh, of forage, but the quality isn't there. It's already you know past it, its prime. It's gonna look good, um, but we want and deer want for the most attractive forage to be young tender vegetative we don't want any lignin content in oats um so it we have to plant the right times to hit that window of okay now my food plot's coming up it's attracting deer it's getting them here it's a known food source but it's still young and tender like there, there's that happy medium and window of the right time appropriate time to plant and we have to use not hunting opening days or you know when season opens up but climate weather conditions, patterns, frost dates to dictate when to plant. If you plant oats or cereal rye or winter wheat too early in the, in the growing season, or if you plant them in, let's just say July and you see them start growing up and you're like, wow, look at all the growth I hit, I have. And you start seeing seed heads form, especially on the oats. That's not going to make it quick. It's not going to make it through the winter because it's going to freeze and and you're you're it's not going to be allowed to survive that winter, stay in blade form, and then come out in March and start continuing growing. Well, if you're making if the if a plant is making seed heads right now, it's not putting more production into the leafy matter. It's putting production or storing up into, for winter. Yeah, it's like, come on, they want to eat the young, fresh, tender stuff. They always do. Use that to your advantage for so a hunting stretch. If you want to plant turnips, now that's one thing you could do and plant in, depending on your area, earlier than your cereal grains because the turnips, you'll have ample time to grow up some nice big um, leaves and bulbs. The problem is if if you do have a long growing season, you may get huge turnips. Yeah. Uh, almost like softball size turnips. Hard to eat. And that's them. not ideal. I would much rather have a bunch of golf ball and, yeah. and kind of little bit smaller and baseball size turnips than have monsters out there. So there is definitely some errors made when we plant our food plots too early. And some of those things that can, can cause failure in planting early in the season for with your food plots is drought. August... And even September are notorious for being dry in a lot of parts of the country, especially here in, in uh, southern Missouri. If you plant your turnips or your brassicas or your cereal grains and you're not paying attention to the weather patterns and you're not paying attention to the tropical storms and the hurricanes coming through and you just plant them and you get a little bit of rain it grows up, you may be sitting there with one-inch tall food plots and three weeks of no rain 
Yep. Or if it turns out like last year, you may get some rain the first week of August, and you may not get a measurable rain till the last week of October. Hopefully that doesn't ever happen again. <laughs> but you definitely are faced with some drought issues during that late summer. So It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. That's right. When the years allow for a drought during the, these, this time frame. So gonna happen. then you also can face, if you plant too early, you have the problem with weeds. Um, if you plant too early and so let's say you go out and you spray or you, <clears throat> God forbid, you go out and you, you plow and disc everything um, and you turn up new weed seeds and it's early in the season and you get some rain, you're going to have new weed seeds come germinate and start growing. And so you're going to have the chance of weeds going to seed um, while you're trying to grow a food plot. That's so very true. that's definitely an issue that can happen. I mean, you look at Johnson grass. Um, we've seen it coming up in some of our plots that, like, we have a heritage blend, er, an area that we planted in the Stratton Heritage Blend, which has got all kinds of stuff. So there was no herbicide sprayed from April till now. And we didn't even spray it now. We're still letting it just continue to grow to see what happens. And there's some Johnson grass still trying to grow in the middle of that. And that could be happening in a new food plot that you have. So definitely be cautious of the weeds that are in the area. And also, if you're planting too early, there's a chance those other weeds come up and, and start trying to make seed. Now, the last one is one that has just been, been all over. Up. And for good reason. This is something, I mean, terrible, terrible, terrible what can happen if you plant too early. Now, you got to understand how the army worms work um, and, and I guess how, they, how they're spread. But a lot of times they start out, and I just shared it on our page yesterday, I think, yeah. or two days ago. But the army worms start out kind of in the south a lot, uh, typically the fall army worms. And then they start spreading through a moth going out and basically scouting out the forage, laying their eggs, eggs hatch. Caterpillars come out in the, in the form of what we call the fall armyworm and start consuming the forage. And I'm not talking about consume. I'm talking about full-fledged. You mean destroyed, Eat devastate. it to nothing. Zero. Um, in forage. no time. Because it's the sheer numbers Yeah. And of the eggs that get dropped. And, and in a post that we both talked about, I don't think it was in the article that you, you shared. No, it but, was not. Um, Somebody shared it out of Texas. Yeah, it, it was like a piece of equipment. Um and the piece of equipment, the video, looked as if it was moving and vibrating because of the amount of army worms that were on and crawling all over it and among each other. It was disgusting. But Made that's my skin something, crawl. Yeah, that's something that, that we've got to be conscious about and, and be aware of what to recognize. But that can happen. And it's happening, honestly, right here in our area. Yes, There's people and I, on Facebook sharing about it. And a lot of that has to do with people that planted early and got these great, great-looking food these plots. stands. And they had fantastic stands. And when that the moth comes flying along, it sees this great field of forage, yeah. and it lays its eggs. Mm-hmm. But if it comes along, and like our food plots, that's where I'm like, it, it'd have to be a pretty hungry, uh, the moth, if it came in there, it'd be like, nah, I hope they can make it. Because our food plots haven't been established very long, so they're still pretty young. There's not a lot of food there for them to eat. Um, so therefore, we may avoid the knock on wood. It looks like we will avoid the fall armyworm attack just mm-hmm. because we planted at the appropriate time. Yep. And so that's definitely something to keep in mind. 
I think the cutter, what we saw with that army worm, whenever it looked like it was moving, a lot of guys, this is hay fields being affected, not yeah. just food plots. This is a terrible thing that's happening down south and throughout the Midwest of fall army worm attack. And a lot of that can be can be stopped or postponed by planting your food plots a little later when you're not going to have this. I, I see it all the time. Plant early, get great food plots, think, wow, this is going to be the year of food. Yep. Army worms come in, wipe it Boom, out, gone. and now you're planting later than uh, than you than you yeah. wanted to. Well, so. It's kind of like that phrase you often hear: "Bigger is better." That's not always the case, and earlier is not always better with food plots. No, you don't have to be the first one out of the gate to have success, and and probably you shouldn't be the first one out of the gate in your area. Because someone's going to be doing it wrong, or someone's going to be planting too early. Don't yep. let others others dictate when you are planting. Go back to science and and go back to you know what what time and climate and weather is telling you. A big beautiful green food plot can certainly catch an eye, and you know whose eye it can else it can also catch a moth mm-hmm. flying along looking for a food source to lay her eggs on, and yep. then have army worms. There you go. So. Um, that's definitely something that can be a problem if you're not on top of it. You know, you know what else is a problem? Bad access. That's it. To hunting stands, food plots, and we we talked about it certainly on the hunting podcast before. Um, and, and this just goes back to hunting the right areas um, and knowing when you have the right access and when you don't. And I think part of that you have to understand what deer are doing, where they're traveling from to recognize and know ahead of time if it is good access, great access, or just downright bad access. Just because of a trail camera indicates that deer are in a plot, let's just say like time-lapse mode. That's a great mode to run on fields to observe when deer are coming out to a food plot. But sometimes that doesn't always indicate exactly where they're coming in and out of the food plot, how they're traveling, what direction they're coming from. And I'm thinking of food plot um, there on, on Prairie Hollow that there's multiple cameras on right now. It's not a very big food plot, but you have to have multiple on there to really tell the whole story of, okay, how are these deer entering this field? But then what are they doing when they get into the field as well? And not, the, you know, there's not always the right tree or right situation, the field shape, to be able to tell the story with just one camera. So determining where deer are coming from in and out of will then help lead you to understanding good access, bad access. And yes. access right now, key. Didn't we didn't we devote an entire podcast to access? Hunting podcast, yes we did. Okay. Sure did. Yep. I was a hunting one. I couldn't remember if it was hunting or habitat. But access is one of those things that's like, blah, it's, it sounds very boring, but it's like one of the most crucial things to harvesting mature deer and harvesting deer in general on a, on a continuing successful season to where yeah, you're you doing can, it week after week. You can luck into some deer with bad access. But if you want to hunt, especially a, a stand, you know, from opening day, there's some of those stands out there. I think of several of them. That where it's like, okay, this is going to be good all year round. Like, yeah. it's just in a great spot. But if I'm accessing it wrong and bumping deer, then it's not going to be. It's like, if I played the game, would you rather? Would you rather have three sets with mediocre to bad access or one set with great access? I'll take the one set with great access Yeah, over the three all day long. Um, 
If they all had the same wind. Yeah. And and I think that access during the early season can be one of those that gets a little more – you get a little more lazy, especially in tumor country. Um, I, I guess even in, in um, other parts of the country, we, it's not a lot of timber crop country is – for us, if it meant walking through a ditch and trying to get up through a, an area to get to my stand, there's a really good chance you're going to get loaded with seed ticks by stumbling through the woods this time of the year because we haven't had the first major frost yet. So you can get covered in ticks or you'll have to go through a swampy, wet area in crop country that where you may get loaded up with mosquitoes. Or We always fall victim, or not always, but we oftentimes fall victim to laziness when it comes to access. What's the path of least resistance? Cause that's the one I want to take. Or, or where can I, yeah. Where can I park the buggy closest to the food plot? Yeah. Bumping or learning the deer. I want to get there quickly. And Quicker so, isn't always better. No. And it's, so it's best to take your time, pick the best access, use the terrain to your advantage, use the features of the landscape, um, whether that be a patch of native grass or, um, shrubby species, whatever it is, uh, a ditch, a creek, a ravine, float in on a kayak, whatever it is, use the best access. The one part of access that really bugs me is when people hunt a food plot early in the season and they walk in on the edge of the food plot and they walk out on the edge of the food plot. Yep. Or... The other one that drives me nuts is whenever you sit in a stand and you're like, well, I guess I'll climb down or I'll howl like a coyote and I'll blow them all out of here in a small food pot especially. I'll blow them out of here with a coyote howl and then I'll just climb down and walk out. A lot of times if you blow them out with a coyote, they just run to the edge or run just inside the timber and turn around and stand there and watch that field. Just because so, you, you can't see them doesn't mean they don't know what's going around. They oftentimes, especially if there's strength in numbers, multiple deer, they're going to stay around and watch and figure out what exactly that was. Yes. And another bad access story would be, okay, in this food plot, when I hunt it, somebody has to come and drive the vehicle out in the food plot and blow the deer out of here, and then they pick me up. And that's not a good plan long term. That's a short – that's a Band-Aid on a, on, a, uh, on a wound that needs stitches. And so uh, – you definitely want to have a better access plan than letting somebody drive in and blow the deer out in a vehicle. And that comes with planting screens, with edge feathering, with looking at your approach and finding the way to walk through the timber or walk through the ditch or walk through the, the edge of the old field just to get into your stand or your blind to where you're not blowing deer out. Now, here's the true kicker in a good access. This is separates the men from the boys is... Whenever there's deer in the food plot, how can you get out of there without blowing them out? Good access will allow you to do that. Now, that goes with the question of sometimes it's not great to hunt, especially early season, to hunt your big destination fields. It's better to leave your monster destination fields or your bigger food plots for late season, um, and you're hunting the transition areas. You're hunting the little kill plots in between the bedding areas and the um and the destination food plots so that's another thing to keep in mind but for the most part this subject this topic is talking about access so avoid the access where you're walking through the fields and at any point you're blowing deer out for sure i was just thinking of like a 
almost a podcast just based on the topic and the subject, the thought process, like a step one, two, three to either maybe it's develop a stand site, an area that's really good, or or just identify and hunt a stand site because there's honestly so many factors and steps that go into this one stand site and you know it's it's a fact of okay knowing exactly where the deer are going to come from funneling the deer how the, how they're going to enter a field how you're going to enter and exit the field based on the wind and it's got to be right for the deer and you to enter and exit like there's so many factors that go into it but like just bullet points just do this do this do this do this do this wham now you've got a great spot. Like instead of doing like a property breakdown, now we do a food plot breakdown to where it's specifically how do we make this food plot? How do we read this food plot and how do we make it better for hunting? Yeah, take take a random opening in the timber because everyone's probably got one, whether it's yeah. you know a quarter acre or a tenth of an acre, something, but just say, okay, I want to hunt this, I want to plant this in a food plot, but that's all I got. Like yeah. how do we then make it just bulletproof great hunting spot that's it yeah maybe we'll do that next week maybe we'll do that in the hunting podcast this week there we go there we go um that it on access for you basically you just said it not understanding how the deer access so not only do we want to look at how we access a food plot how are deer coming into it and if that deer are just coming in target like that you have to that's your your if you will your enemy like you have to know your enemy to be able to capitalize on it like you have to know what you're doing but you also have to know and anticipate what they're going to do and and you have to have it almost on a routine like they have to do the same thing over and over and over for you to be able to capitalize on it think of it like an airport if you were the pilot and you're just focused on how you're getting the airport there'd be problems because there yeah. has to be somebody coordinating and understanding how the other airplanes are coming in. Yeah. Same thing with deer. You have to understand how the deer are coming in the food plot just as much as how you're coming in the food plot. How many – raise a hand. For you guys driving down the road, raise your hand or pat yourself in the back of the head with a swift, firm slap. But keep if the one go, hand on the steering wheel, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you go, how are the deer – I'm asking you this question. How are the deer entering your food plot? And if you said from everywhere – Something has to change. Go ahead and move that hand forward yeah. and because you, we have to change that. And that's where the edge feathering and bedding thickets and uh, planting screens and everything like that comes into play. Uh, and I can't tell you how many places we go to that that, that does occur, and it's, it's a very common thing. And, and I, we've hunted those areas too, and then over time learned to develop them into – a it's a complex puzzle but you put all the pieces together and it's like we turned something that was honestly a good place to hunt but pretty chaotic into an organized like like you said let's just call it an airport or an intersection okay deer will come from here and they will also come from here and then they're going to meet here and that's where i'm at at that intersection but i can also approach and exit that intersection without being detected from where those deer are coming from you have to be able to take an area and organize it into a great hunting location. That's it. Yeah, and and we will walk you through the steps on how we do that in the coming podcast and in the future of how we set up a property, not just on from a 30,000-foot Google Earth 
aerial image and say, oh, yeah, put your stand here, put a food yeah. plot here. Oh, this is flat ground, put the food plot there. Uh, let's have a road going through this. No, stop it. That's Nuts, just <laughs> bolts, everything. Just That would be me walking into a mechanic shop and saying, oh, you have a leaky engine here. Let's fix this and let's yeah. put a new tire on ah, it. Let's throw some JB Weld on her yeah. and call her good. It's, it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. For sure. and, and it's a process of understanding the terrain and the habitat and what's lacking and then put these all in place to where it's a, a very, um, very complex I li- I like simple in my life. I- I'm a pretty it, simple guy. There's nothing simple about this. But this is not one of those things that I want it to be simple. I, I I want there to be a lot of things that that influence the factors of deer movement because that's what then makes them and their movements predictable. Yeah, hunting on calm days. Now that one drives me nuts, and that's something that just I don't enjoy. No, nope. calm days are is one of those where it's like, who? It's as a kid, I thought that was what I wanted. I want calm day because I want to hear him coming. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't be calm days is like the the okay they are coming but they're on edge, and then they hear my shoulder pop when I'm drawing the bow and they they're out of there. Yep, I want to have some wind. Now, when you look at calm days, and this was last week's podcast, we talked about milkweed seeds, and everybody's using a lot of people are using milkweed seeds now, or the not the actual seed, but the, the uh, carrier the carrier of the seed. And they're releasing them. If you want to understand a calm day, release a couple of those and just watch what they do. A lot of times they're going to go everywhere. And they may just hover and they may float down to the ground and set. And then they may float back up and and then float back down. It's a disaster trying to hunt calm days. Especially in terrain country if you're hunting a valley or a saddle. Especially in timber country that the leaves are still on the trees. Yes. Because it's like... You might as well throw a a uh, greenhouse over top of you and just let it hover and sink down to the ground. Like it's just so encompassing, and so it's usually humid early season, and there's no wind, and it's just like stagnant air, and it just like falls and sinks, yeah. or or it does float slowly um, down to the ground in all sorts of different directions. That's yep. that's disastrous. Another big problem, or another problem you make have during the early season is missing the cold fronts i i don't because of all the factors we talked about like early on the podcast there's so many things that are changing early season can be good and i get excited about it but i don't get too excited about it until there's a cold front yeah a a cold front and, and i think it's important to mention there's a note here on it it's like a cold front doesn't have to be seriously doesn't have to be especially early season a 20 degree temperature change or a 10 degree temperature change sometimes even like that five degree temperature change between days can get deer on their feet a little bit closer like and that's like for us september 15th that's like the first like couple weeks after that though i do want to see those bigger steeper more intense cold fronts yeah but don't miss them Whatever they may be, early season. Try don't not miss to. Those. You may have to work. Yeah, they yeah. have to work. Hunting mornings, another thing that season opens up, we're all excited. But you go out in the mornings when there's a lot of humidity. Think about how many times you've hunted mornings during the early season, 
and your feet get soaked and your knees get soaked walking in because there's a heavy dew and you're just like, man, there's a lot of there. It's foggy and there's a lot of moisture in the air. Well, a lot of moisture means that your scent particles are are carrying a lot further. It's a lot easier for deer to smell. So if you are hunting those heavy dew, heavy dreary days, there's a better chance that you're going to get smelled. Also, mornings during that. Now, there are a lot of good deer killed early in the season hunting in mornings. It takes a very special stand. It takes a very special buck, and it takes a very special access to be able to hunt mornings. It's the perfect storm. Don't be hunting your food plots in mornings during the early season. That's just a no-no. Um, don't If you're going to bump deer or you you did it one time and you bump deer walking in and you spook some deer while in the stand, don't do it. Find a better way to hunt. Find a, find a, another hobby where you can hunt or <laughs> another hobby that you can do in the mornings where you're not hunting. Maybe hunt golf some public in the morning ground. and hunt the evening. Yeah. Um, but hunting mornings during the early, early season is feast or famine. Yeah, and it, it's very much, it can be great, but also it's, there's not a lot of neutral ground. Um, you could kill something, but you're also going to alert a lot of stuff. So, um, unless you have a really good pattern on a buck, I probably wouldn't hunt mornings during the first couple of weeks of season. Uh, not packing a thermosel. <laughs> this is, this <laughs> is kind of like that warning of like the, um, the seed ticks and stuff of having the wrong access if you're bumping through brush and stuff. This time of the year, there's no frost. There's no frost, and mosquitoes can be horrible, 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 and especially if you don't have like stiff winds. Stiff winds will knock down the, the mosquitoes, but if you're hunting like that, like mildish wind day, and it's humid, and you're close to a water source or a puddle or something like that, mosquitoes will find you, and they will not leave you alone. That's right. And I know we'll probably get the question of like, well, can't deer smell thermosel? It's like, yeah, they could, but I also don't want to get bitten, eaten alive in the stand, and there's no way to be a 110% scent proof. So I, I, I'm going to have the thermosel in the stand. I, I mean, I, I don't want to be carried off by the mosquitoes. No. And uh, that's where it goes back to simply... Like, what's the most effective way to hunt, um, like, when it comes to, like, scent prevention and stuff like that? And it, it goes back to the basic hunt the wind. Yep. Hunt the wind. Is that, so it is that simple. Now, going back into land, habitat, food plots, this is one during early season we all get excited and we're like, and I see this a lot whenever you want to, you're like, I'm not going to plant a plot. No, I'm going to plant a plot. And you go out and you plant a plot that's too small. And what I mean is, you see this a lot on social media. Somebody goes out and scratches up a, a little area in the woods, um, and they take a hand tiller out and they they till up some ground. Take a second, if if you're one of these guys. Hopefully, I won't offend you too much here. Stand in that, look up in the sky. Do you see much sunlight? If no, then you probably wasted a lot of time. Or, or if it is that small, and you look up, and there's probably only sunlight for an hour or two during the day during the very in the very like center portion of that plot probably not a a great chance of having a successful stand you might have some stuff come up but it won't be very good 
and it certainly isn't going to have the attractive power that you're really looking for. No. You're probably putting it there because it's a small opening and, and you're traveling through it and or And you're trying it. to bottleneck deer. Yeah. You would be better served to bottleneck deer by dropping some trees in a line for 50 yards and building some sort of natural fence than yeah. you would making a, a living room-sized food plot where it's not getting any sunlight. Because you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to plant that. And during a time of the year when a lot of trees are sucking up nutrients and they're trying to store it for the winter, so they're going to take a lot of the moisture. And then come October, November, all the leaves are going to fall and you're going to have leaves laying on that food plot, basically smothering out your seed. So there's definitely some issues there. When you look at it from a, what's what's better then? Well... Let's look at it from a standpoint and say, what's the purpose? What's your goal? Your goal is to bottleneck deer. Okay, so you, and then you also want to have some sort of food source. Well, why don't we have some sort of, why don't we cut a few trees to create a natural fence, some sort of bottleneck, cut these trees, that's going to bring in more sunlight, and then we can have some native, some sort of native species come up to provide forage during the summer, cover during the winter. I would be I would much rather have that than have a food plot that's well below uh, peak production. Well, you know, it's just a, it's just a matter of of looking at it and say, okay, what again is the total production or value that I'm producing by the time I'm spending here trying to put in this food plot. It's very very minimal. And again, if you're like I said, if you're just trying to congregate deer, Make it easy on yourself. Cut some trees. That's it. Next one. Planting small plots in areas that cause too much disturbance. Yes. I see this one with when we we have a great stand. And we try to take a great stand and make it an even better stand. So we try to plant a little food plot there and we end up making a great stand an okay stand because we completely change what's we completely change the area we we change the way the deer are interacting in the area we took an area that deer felt very comfortable and we put in a food plot which they already if if you have a lot of food plots in the area you have to know that deer probably are associating food plots with with some danger just because they're that's where we focus so much of our time. There's so much of our scent. There's so many food plots or, or uh, trail cameras, tree stands. Everything about a food plot screams the chance of being attacked or a predator being near. There's a higher alert. So then we take an area in the timber, which they're used to. They're comfortable there. You've got daylight images, and then you throw in a food plot, and you completely change up this, this landscape. This is one thing that I try to always avoid. You see it a lot, though, where you take a, you have a great tree stand, and you're like, ah, I just wish they'd come a little closer. And instead of cutting one tree and making a natural fence, you end up blowing out a few an area, tilling it up, putting a food plot, and it's never going to be peak production. And you sit there and wonder, man, why aren't they coming to this food plot? That's probably why. Like, our thoughts are, if it's a food plot, make it a great food plot. If it's a bedding area... Make it a great bedding area. If it's a transition zone, understand that it's a transition zone and make it a great transition zone, but don't turn basically a transition zone 
into a food plot. Don't make it what it's not and, and, and basically decrease the value of that area. Cut some trees, funnel some deer in that transition zone, but you don't have to turn every great stand or put a food source around every great stand. Mock scrape mishaps. One thing that I see, mock scrapes are popular. I love mock scrapes. I think it's a great thing to put out. Um, keep in mind that I don't that we don't use um, attractants that are natural. Um, it's not coming. How do I put this so eloquently? Straight out of a deer. They're synthetic. Straight out of a deer from a high fence that yeah. that we just don't know where the urine's coming from. There's too many unknowns with CWD, and there's too many unknowns about. Um, captive deer herds. Captive deer herds. So we use synthetics, but more importantly, probably our favorite, and it's unfortunate because we can't sell it, uh, is just peeing in it ourselves. So we always try to drink plenty of water and before we were putting up our mock scrapes. Now, mock scrapes is now becoming something that's easy to market products, and so people are putting mock scrapes out across the country in areas where probably not going to get any uh, any action, any activity from deer at mock scrape uh, locations. So some of the common mishaps, putting them in the wrong areas. Uh, mock scrapes aren't going to work well in the middle of timber ground um, where there's not really a reason for them to come and make a scrape there. A mock scrape is basically, in our opinion, putting a scrape in an area that you can hunt over and trying to, for the same reason of, as we talked about the small food plots, trying to bottleneck deer, make some sort of communication post where deer will come into that to check it out whenever they're in the area. So if you're on a logging road, you could put up mock scrapes. And, and don't think of mock scrapes as just a, uh, a post with a tree tied to it. It could be as simple as just taking a licking branch or what looks like a licking branch and slightly bending it closer to the appropriate height and raking out the ground below it and making it look like deer are starting to use it as a scrape. That's that's just a, a mock scrape. is just a man-made scrape. And so putting them in the wrong areas. Um, we like to put them at the edge of a food plot, of large food plots, where um, we're trying to bring deer into range. We'll do that by putting up a, a post and tying a tree to it or raking out the branches underneath a, a licking branch or what looks like a licking branch and cutting all the others in that end of the field to where that is the only place for the deer to scrape. Um, that's what truly makes a limited resource. That's it. You, and, and, to, and makes it a, a attraction to how, a hunter. How many times do you go to a food plot, especially this time of year when deer really start scraping? And a lot of times it's young bucks, but there are some mature bucks that go to them and you go to the edge of a food plot and it's just ripped up. Every branch has a scrape on it. Yeah. This is a way to really confine them, to put them in one spot, cut a majority of those and leave it to where all the licking branches or the one licking branch that's left is the one by your tree stand. Yeah. Well, that's got a, that will present a broadside shot, an opportunity, whatever your range is, 30 and under, let's just say, put it right there. Make them come out to it. So mock, another mock scrape mishap is putting them out too early. Think of it like this. Whenever you put up a mock scrape, you want the bucks to be thinking about already scraping. You want them to be already doing some of the scrapes, uh, doing some of the scraping. Don't put them out in July and August whenever 
they're still in velvet and you're like, oh, I want them to come into it. They're going to come take a couple sniffs at it, but it's like, oh, I know what that is about. I don't really, okay, maybe I'll remember it in two months. Who knows what's going through a deer head. Um, put them out whenever they're already thinking about it. That way it is natural for them to see it, smell it, come check it out, work that scrape, and hopefully they start considering that when they're in the area, they start associating that scrape with the communication post so they keep coming back. You can see this happen whenever you put scrapes out too early to where you'll get one picture or one video of a buck coming to check it out, and then you're like, man, why doesn't he use this anymore? Well, he came to it when he wasn't ready, and he forgot about it. So avoid putting them out too early. That's an early, uh, another early season mishap of putting out mock scrapes too early. Another thing, we all love it. We're all guilty, including myself. Putting out trail cameras on these mock scrapes or anywhere. It could be a food plot. It could be what a water hole. But checking our cameras too often during the early season because bucks have started changing their patterns. They went from summer ranges to winter ranges and now you can't find them, so you're running more cameras, you're checking them more often, and you're alerting more deer. Be Res- cool, dude. Res- respect their presence and respect their the security that that's basically uh, they associate with that, that that area. Especially, you know, they're coming in during the daylight. Um, you want that to continue, so don't put too much pressure on it. And what we just are, are trying out um, and kind of set up was that that uh, cutting link system with that cellular camera and past what like three four days they've gotten email updates twice a day of well, it's four cameras four different cameras four cameras that yeah. are linked to this one cell camera and it's like hey we don't have to go in there like we don't have to travel to the farm check cameras they are sent directly there put them in places link them up and see what happens yeah don't forget the ABCs. Always be cool. Always be cool. <laughs> yeah, I need to if remind you, myself of that all the time. Yeah, then. Don't, don't, just don't screw it up. Don't that's, get too like fidgety that's what or, or. This podcast is about because again, it's still early season. That's the thing that we, we keep talking about: common early season mistakes. You don't have to capitalize right now, early season, for your season to not be successful. Like. You got the rest of the season. We're over an hour, so let's get through this because we got to head to the stand. We do. It's a great. It's like so, 68 degrees. Today. As we promised high. last week, we're going to start changing up, and we've got your would you rather's, but we also have our fun facts. Cool we have facts. Yeah. Cool facts about plants and animals that you may not have know about or how they can be incorporated into your management. Uh, Matt's got an animal, and I've got a plant this week. Next week, we'll swap it. Let's okay. Hear it. So. This is the river otter. They're such cool animals. They're fun to watch. They're obviously like very um, lively creatures. They you see them in zoos, or if you if you have the chance to see them in the wild, they're so active, have extremely high metabolisms. But what is super cool about a river otter is their ability to stay underwater for eight minutes at a time. They're they're mammals. Like they they don't have gills, so they're breathing like you and I. And but they also have the opportunity, the, excuse me, the ability to shut their nostrils and their ears tightly so that no water comes in while they're underwater. Isn't that crazy? They can crazy. close their ears and their nostrils. Another really cool thing um, 
about the river otter is their ability to see underwater and detect other animals, specifically prey, their fish. Um, they can see extremely well, but their sense of smell is, is incredible. And they obviously have whiskers. Um, and just like a cat and things like that, the whiskers on river otters sense vibrations and detect that in the water. So they can kind of tell, even if it's like super murky um, conditions or, or it's dark, they can tell and, and detect based on their sense of smell and the, the whiskers that sense the vibrations where their prey is. So they're always able to forage. Um, so it's crazy. So the metabolism, um, they can eat a meal and then they digest it and pass it within an hour. That's why they eat so much. That's why they are always eating and are like ferocious. They're, they're, they're intense, aggressive critters. Um, but that's how fast their metabolism is. They're, they're sleek. They're, they're lean. Um, but, man, they're cool. I can't believe they can stay underwater for eight minutes. That's crazy. Eight whole minutes. Hmm. And their whiskers. Like, it, it seems so silly to have, like, hairs on, a, on their face. Like like they're inconsequential, but in reality they're extremely important to the way that they predate and and eat and forage. What plant do you have? I have the native. The native. I'm getting a phone call right now. I was trying to oh. go to my notes. The native clover ah, of yeah. North America. A lot of people are like, oh, yeah, red clover, ladino clover. Wrong, 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 wrong. A lot of the clovers that we buy in a feed store or see um, on a shelf are not native. The red clovers, Heck. ladino clovers. Most all food pot species are, no, not, are not native. Yes, and and actually a lot of the clovers that we see are problematic in the native grasslands, the native prairie ecosystem mm-hmm. um, because they are so hardy and they, they do make a great seed that's – that uh, viable can lay viable, viable and seal for a, long, for a time. long time. So it's important to know that if you are in a native landscape restoration, that the red clovers and the the clovers that you're thinking about that are sold in the feed store aren't native. Um, now there's nothing wrong with them in in certain situations, but they can not be great. And even the sweet clovers um, are are known to be invasive in the prairie growers. prairie ecosystem. So. A lot of your yellow and white sweet clovers are a problem. This is actually one of my favorites. Go figure. The purple prairie clover. Um, the purple prairie clover has a range pretty much throughout the Midwest and southern Canada, uh, um, Saskatchewan, Alberta, all the way down to Texas, south Texas. It is a legume and fixates a ton of nitrogen. But the thing about purple prairie clover, it's got a, a taproot on it, but it is adapted to slopes, hillsides, prairies, plains. Um, it's widely distributed, but it can take heat incredibly well, so much that it survives and thrives on the limestone glade ecosystem uh, throughout the south. That's a tough critter right there. That, anything that can survive the... On a limestone, hot surface, dry surface... That's got to be a tough critter. That's right. Um, it's got a beautiful bloom. You know how much I love the bloom of a purple prairie clover. The thing about the purple prairie clover to me is that it doesn't look anything like a clover. 
you would look at it and say, well, where's the clover? I don't see a, a, a leaf head. It has a very different look, but it's one of our native clovers. And I think the, the whole point of this one focuses on the purple prairie clover. There's also the white prairie clover is the fact that they are our native clovers. Mm-hmm. but they don't look anything like the clovers that we think of when we think of clovers. Well, so, w- would would a white ladino clover be able to survive in those conditions? No way. No. Heck no. no. So, purple prairie clover's native warm season perennial legume. Um, and it can grow up to two and a half feet tall. Um, leaves are about an inch long, very narrow. Um Oh, gosh. The seed pod will contain between one to two seed seeds each. Um, it blooms from April to June, and the seed matures from mid-June to late, to late August. Uh, but it's just a, an awesome little legume. Fixates nitrogen, takes grazing really well, and it also is a key uh, species when it comes to providing nectar for pollinators. So mm. it's it's one of those jack of all trades, master yeah. of all. Um, it doesn't take the wet soils very well, but it can take very dry, gravelly, sandy, clay, long list. But you know what's cool though? I bet you there's a plant out there that will survive very well in those wet conditions, and it's going to be a native. Yep, for know? sure. It's yeah. We'll maybe highlight it in the future. There we go. Uh anyway, that pretty well wraps us up for this week. Um, you got a would you rather? Would you rather? I asked one earlier in the. Yeah. I, I asked mine earlier in the. Would you rather continue talking on this podcast or would you rather let's go hunting? Let's go hunting. We'll see you guys <laughs> next time. See ya.